G'day and welcome to Property, Australia's favourite obsession, and welcome to 2021. Hope you had a great Christmas and a special New Year's break. I personally must have been a very good boy last year, because I've got to say I got everything that I wanted for Christmas. That is, I got record low interest rates, massive government infrastructure spends, productivity is improving whilst unemployment's falling, and of course, we've got growing GDP and property prices are really starting to roar. 2021 is going to offer huge opportunities for us in the property market. And so I'm excited, super excited to be back here in the seat with our podcast, PAFO. And these are certainly exciting times, huge investment opportunities for our PAFO community is how we see it. And I hope that 2021 is the year that your property portfolio expands. Whether it's your first purchase or whether you're adding to a substantial portfolio, we'd love to help you. We'd love to get in touch. I hope you've been enjoying our PAFO, Property Australia's favourite obsession podcast, as much as I've had pleasure of putting it together. I've got to say thanks for everyone for sharing and telling your friends all about it. I've really enjoyed putting these podcasts together. For me, it's been a new thing. It's been a great way to learn, and I've really enjoyed interviewing and learning from my guests. There's so much to learn about property, and there's just so many connections and so many stories that all come back to that thing that sits under our feet, property. We can't get away from it. And that's the exciting thing about it, isn't it, that the drivers of property are right there in front of us, but often we're just too blind to see. We don't see the forest for the trees. Now, we've covered a lot of ground in our PAFO episodes so far, so I wanted to go back in January 2021 that it is and go back and revisit some of the great moments and some of the important learning points that we've covered off in our podcast so far. Now, PAFO, it's about property. Property, Australia's favourite obsession. But it's really about showing you how the five drivers of property prices are working in action. This is the reoccurring theme throughout this podcast. The five drivers, infrastructure, technology, population, credit, and of course, government-granted licences. Now, I call this podcast Property, Australia's favourite obsession, because we are all obsessed with property, aren't we? That's what brings us together as a community. That's what we're here to learn about. And if you remember back to the very first episode that we put out where I talked with James Pledge from Night Frank Valuations, this was the first question that I ever actually asked on this podcast. So I reckon let's go back and have a listen to what James said about his obsession about property. So the first question I've got to ask is, are you obsessed with property? Yeah, I think I am. I think I am. I, uh, I've always loved, I think it might even be the, the voyeur in me that loves walking through people's houses and seeing how other people live and what they've done to their houses and uh, you know, just getting ideas about uh, w- what we could do next. Is it something that gets under your skin, in your blood, that you just kind of can't get rid of? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. It's 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 all pervasive. You know, everything we do is somehow linked back to property. You know, it doesn't matter where you live or park your car or or work. So, you see the property industry from quite a different perspective from what most people do as a valuer. What does a valuer? actually do what is their role a valuer's role is to interpret what's happening in the market so uh, intrinsically we're looking backwards uh, but with the knowledge of what's happening today so to, to put in a simplest uh, 
we we look at what a house might sell for. Yep. We compare it to the property that we're looking at to mm-hmm. value, and we add and subtract uh, value depending on its pros and cons in comparison to the house we're valuing. So direct comparison, making comparisons, interpreting the market is the simplest way to, to describe valuation. I reckon there's something in that answer for all of us, isn't there? We all love it. Property is something that just gets under your skin. You just love it, don't you? And you just can't get enough of it. And when James said, everything we do is somehow linked back to property, it doesn't matter where you live or park your car or work. Remember in the promo when I said that everybody loves property. We buy it, we sell it, we feel it every day as we live in apartments, flats, townhouses on quarter acre blocks and in courtyard homes. Every minute of every day of our lives, we are touched by property. As we visit shopping and medical centers, we eat in restaurants and hotels, we attend school, the office, and lots of other places of work. Our leisure time is spent in cinemas and theaters, parks, and in sporting arenas. We cannot get away from it. Everybody has a connection to property as a tenant, a homeowner or a landlord, and hence our obsession with it. And when James gave that answer that everything that we do is somehow linked back to property, I knew that my vision of PAFO was off and running. That question was completely without notice to James, and so his answer was straight from the hip, and I thought it was a fantastic one. But the real question as listeners that I want you to be asking is that why did we chat with James? Why did James come on Patho? Why was I talking with James? And it's not just because he's a great mate and an exceptional valuer that I've known a long time, but there is a reason that I had James come on to our podcast. And this is the questions that I want you to be asking when you're listening to Patho, or why these guests on and what have they got to contribute? So why did I have James on? Well, it's important for us to understand the role that the valuation industry plays. We need to understand its purpose, who does it serve, and how are valuations derived, and to understand that there's different types of valuations. So who better than the past president of the Australian Property Institute, who's been awarded a Life Fellowship of the Australian Property Institute, James Pledge. So James is a big deal in the valuation space, but more importantly, how does James's conversation with me relate back to our drivers? Most property purchases occur with some level of finance. That is, the bank lends them some money to help them purchase the particular property. For investors, the valuation industry is intrinsically linked with the banks. They rely on each other. See, remember, banks are paramount to one of our drivers, the creation of credit. So us as investors, when we're accessing finance, It involves the bank making an assessment as to the valuation of the property that they're going to hold as security for that particular extension of credit. And this is usually undertaken, of course, by a valuer. Now, valuation professionals play a huge part in our ability to access credit. So as investors, we need to access finance. So we need to understand the valuation industry. So here are a few clips from my interview with Knight Frank valuer, James Pledge. From a commercial point of view, uh, how would you go about doing? How would you go about? Uh, how would you go about creating evaluation? Yeah, um, so that's that's a really broad question uh, because every asset is slightly different. If we if we pick on a you know a reasonably simple uh, office building that has a lease to a you know a, a well known group of accountants, say you know. Yep. Uh, 
So grade A, we're talking yeah, top tier blue chip style that's right. investment um, asset. That's right. So th- there's there's two two basic methods for for an asset like that. If it if it was um, say fifty million dollars, we'll just pick that as a as a, a price point. Capitalization of the net return. Mm-hmm. So applying a capitalization rate to the return after all tax and other costs that you can't recover from the tenant. Um, would be one of the primary methods, and then a discounted cash flow, um, pr- typically over five to ten years, which where you're trying to build in all the variables that that um, might influence value. Where capitalisation is a reasonably blunt instrument, you mm-hmm. know, 0.25 of a percent in the capitalisation rate can make a huge difference in value. Yeah. The the discounted cash flow is trying to smooth out that blunt blunt instrument and build in a whole lot of factors which go to to um, deriving value. So how would that differ then from you going out and valuing um, a hotel or a pub that has got a lot more, or got different moving parts? Yeah, and, and it's really about how the market treats the asset. We, we're trying to imitate the market. So in the case of the office building, the investor who's buying that is reasonably sophisticated and would treat it in the same way we're trying to value it. In the terms of a pub, um, we're imitating how a publican is, yeah. go- is going to, to go and value that business. And they look at it on the basis of what money they can get out of it mm-hmm. and what multiple they're willing to pay. Yeah. It's, it's as simple as that. And that is driven by the broader market. So when you say, um, you know, in that context that, that by definition or essentially a valuer is trying to imitate the market um, and by definition you know you're trying to look at the current climate of those um, purchases and 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 sellers um, but by definition you've got to look backwards what happens when you're in a roaring bull market where there's a lot of euphoria about property prices or when you have the potentially the opposite where there's an exit um, and you've, you've got a falling market how, how does that affect your approach um, and the reliability of the valuation itself yeah so valuation isn't perfect for all the reasons that we've talked about in the residential uh, sense that the emotion is hard to measure and because of the legislation, the various court cases that have occurred over mm-hmm. you know, almost a, well over 100 years in Spencer's case, um, we are limited to what we can take into account yep. legally and, and also as a, from a professional. So in a really rapidly rising market, we're probably going to be behind the market slightly and that's yep. why it's so important for us to... Uh, analyze the latest sales yeah. in, in, in a market which is going either up or down quickly yep. you really need to be at the absolute coal face of what's happening talking to the participants rather than looking back six months because then mm-hmm. you really will lag what's yeah. ha- what's happening in a particular market so there is a risk that either way rising or a falling market you're going to lag the movement a bit but the the skill of the valuer is to be um, at the coalface, talking to the right people, understanding what's happening in that marketplace, um, but you're never you're never going to be 
um, as a valuer. If the market is moving really quickly and you value the property at $100, the next one sends, sends, sells for 110 you're not wrong. It's just the point in time that you're that you're um, picking as as the valuation date. Yeah, and that emotional side of it too makes it difficult, doesn't it? I mean that. I mean that would make it hard from a valuation point of view when at times you will have participants who will pay over and above the odds because of an emotional um, uh, and. The exuding emotional factor of them, you know, of excitement, etc. So they're they're not necessarily paying what the market would typically deem uh, an appropriate price. And, and that's where it's also important to look at the broader market. You know, pinning pinning all your hopes on one sale and saying that's you yeah. know that's where the market's at. Uh, for all the reasons you've just talked about, you, you're trusting that the two participants in that transaction, transaction mm-hmm. have got it exactly right. Whereas looking at a basket of sales and say well does that does yeah. that all line up um are they all within a you know a reasonable tolerance mm-hmm. is far more accurate and actually what you should do as a professional i've had a lot of fun putting these podcasts together and it hasn't been without a few errors and trials and tribulations and my second guest warwick leeson i had a great interview with warwick only to realise that, of course, I didn't record it properly. I had some problems there. And that was one of the learning experiences. I guess one of the things that as we've gone along and produced these podcasts, we've got a little bit better, the audio's got a bit better, and the quality, etc. But Warwick is a ripping guy, and I had a great time talking with him. And I have to say, if I was going to do an episode twice, it wasn't a bad guy to do it with. Warwick Leeson, OAM, is someone who has been the elected mayor of his local council several times. And it's not often that you get the opportunity to speak with someone about what motivates councils, about what defines their approach. This was a ripping episode, I thought, where I got to talk to Warwick about things like, do councils really appreciate or understand the financial value that planning and infrastructure creates for landholders? What role does property pay in local government thinking and decision-making? And when they're considering a particular development, will councils consider the uplift in land values associated with the project? Now, again, this is a pretty easy one with our five drivers. Of course, this is driver number five that this episode relates to. Government-granted licences. They are so important to property owners. It's often overlooked, like many of the drivers, but it's fundamental to where the value of our land is created. The fact that governments allow us to own property, unlike many parts of the world, is a boon to investors. It means, of course, that banks are much more sure about the title, so they're more incentivized to create more uh, credit based upon those assets. It, it works in every level, um, ownership titles throughout Australia. But all levels of government, they make rules and they make laws that both increase and decrease both the desirability and, of course, the value of our property holdings. Zoning, planning, infrastructure can severely impact property prices. Understanding the impact that local, state and federal government rules and laws will have on your investments is paramount and will lead you to understand why developers spend so much time and money around all three spheres of governments, because a favourable ruling change can be worth millions to them. This was a great discussion that I had with Warwick and I hope it gets you thinking a little bit more about the role that government plays in the pricing of your assets. What was it that, if you look back in your time as the mayor, what makes you most proud of what you achieved? 
Um, I guess the the placing of the Nilambic Council in a strong financial position that was a, that was a result of having to make some really tough decisions, and we had to hike the rates up. This was long before the two percent rate cap. We had to hike the rates up very significantly because the the council budget that we inherited, we were almost broke. We were you know, bordering on bankruptcy. Wow, I didn't realise that. Yep, and we, we took the, the very principled but very difficult decision and politically unwise decision, I guess you could say, but Nellenbeck is still in a strong financial position uh, because of those decisions. Um, basically, you had the decision either you cut services or increase rates and you decided to continue to um, maintain service levels and, and increase the, the cost of which um, you know you needed to, or the revenue you needed to increase to pay for Essentially, those. yes. Uh, Millenbeck is a, a sort of no to slow growth area. It's a green wedge municipality and the development in the area will never be what it is in the, the neighbouring ones, which are sort of, in many cases, aggressively um, developmental okay so in your opinion what role does property play in local government thinking in their decision making and as the mayor how much influence do you have on these sort of outcomes uh well property is absolutely integral there's two sort of two groups of people who are in the municipality there are the owners of property and then there are the renters. The ones that have decided to invest in property, the owners, they actually go ahead and they pick an area that they want to, to live in and they pick it for a whole range of reasons. In the case of Millenbeck, it is a very strong environmental focus, um, but they still want services and you, you can't not provide services. Some of them are, there's a statutory obligation on. Others, well, it would be nice to have, but, uh, but the people expect these things because their neighbours are getting it. Well, it's got to be paid for because if you've got a load of slow growth area, you don't have the numbers of people to be able to to fund it without the rates being high. And Nellenbeck's rates are the highest in the state. Yeah, OK. Unapologetically. The, the, uh, the advantage of the people who actually own their property as distinct from renting is that they have much more skin in the game. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a much greater uh, sense of community engagement in them because they're there for the long haul. Renters, and again, it's a generalisation, but renters in many cases aren't there for the long haul. They're there for the convenience of it uh, and or maybe because that's their only option. But they tend to be less engaged in community events and activities than the, the property owners. So we believe very much that there's five drivers of property being population, which of course includes community. When people typically talk about population, they think of population growth, but we think of it as much bigger than that, including you know that community atmosphere as to the desirability of people wanting to live in an, uh, in a um, particular area. Infrastructure, which of course councils provide plenty of infrastructure. Um, technology, credit and government granted licences, which includes things like zoning. So you said before that property prices really aren't front and centre from a council perspective when they think about community. What about when they're thinking about 
um, zoning um, or or permitting a particular development. You know, how aware are councils on the value that they can provide to landholders with regards to approvals? A lot of it, uh, a lot of that sort of decision making is taken at the officer level. Um, if it's a if it is a sound and appropriate development application. Um, the officers will almost invariably recommend that it proceed, provided it's not in contrast to the amenity and character. Um, and councillors need to understand that the officers that are employed are independent, they're professional, they understand all the rules and intricacies of, of the regulations far better than any councillors do. Um, so you, got, you, you need to be guided by what the Office of Recommendation is. It doesn't mean you're bound by it, but you certainly need to have a damn good reason um, to reject it. Okay, so that's really interesting. So what you're really saying is that the council doesn't consider the land value at all. Um, it doesn't really even consider the impact it will have to its own revenue, bottom line. It, it's it's about really the, um, uh, the rules and regs that are in place and that if it meets that requirement, then it meets that requirement. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Pretty much as simple as that? Uh, more or less, yes. I think one of the things that I'd like to say, Jeremy, about the um, ownership of property is the emotional aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And I guess that was starkly illustrated to me in the aftermath of the 2009 Victorian Black Saturday bushfires. The people who owned property had a clear point of focus in the recovery and rehabilitation process. And they, that ownership gave them a stability, a real sense of stability. And even though some of them subsequently moved away from the fire zone areas, they had collectively banded together to rebuild their community in the immediate aftermath. Mm-hmm. And, and it was really incredibly touching to witness the joy displayed by these people at the incremental recovery um, points along the way. It's important that we're all open and alert to new developing trends. For many who are finding this whole bulging concrete cities and eyesore, who are looking for a tree change, or at least the way that we can reconnect with nature and our community. COVID has made many people rethink how they live, to reevaluate their personal relationships as well as their relationship to the planet. And many of us have identified the need to have a better balance in our life. Brendan Condon from Cape Patterson Echo Village has embraced these concepts and, as he puts it, building an echo village based upon partnerships with the community and the planet as a whole. Now, this particular story is really quite inspiring, an inspiration of determination and belief in the desire to create better outcomes for all stakeholders, homeowners, investors, the community and the planet as a whole. But you've got to ask, great story, but what does it have to do with us as property investors? What can we learn from Brendan's story? And of course, it always comes back to our five drivers. Population is an important driver of property prices. And Brendan's story is all about population. But typically, when investors hear the word population as a driver, they immediately go to population growth. But this is only half the story. When we talk about population as a driver, one of our five drivers, 
It's more than just population growth. It's about how we live, how we socialize. It's about our communities, our beliefs, and our social desires. It's about what's important to a society, and hence what sort of property is demanded. And Brendan's story is all about the changing demand for environmentally friendly houses, how there's a real demand for sustainable building and living, and how human innovation and technology can make a dream a commercial reality. So let's hear what Brendan had to say about his approach as an environmental developer. Look, we've done uh, hundreds and hundreds of these projects. In fact, we've, we keep a count on how many plants go out the gate at the nursery. We're up to 40 million now. Um, and uh, yeah, so we've done huge numbers of creek lines and wetlands and waterways with the housing estates. And we build these lovely sort of habitat uh, corridors that are really good for recreation and uh, people to get out and connect with nature and exercise and, and all these things. Very important in, in the current COVID uh, environment uh, at the moment, a lot of, a lot of the, the, the public open space projects that we've done. But over the years, you know, we, we did all, all these, these great projects, but I was just looking at the built form and I, I just came to the conclusion that uh, we're building housing that's not really taking into account uh, climate change. Uh, we're building houses that, are amongst the world's biggest houses. They're oversized compared to what people need and they're not very energy efficient. So housing stocks are locking people into high energy costs uh, and they're not very well adapted to um, to rising heat waves. So the big Achilles heel that's coming for the property industry is, is heat and heat waves. Uh, I work closely with uh, some of Australia's um, leading climate scientists and um, you know, there's predictions that we're going to be hitting 50 degree days in Melbourne and Sydney and many cities in in uh, the next 20 years. That might seem like a stretch, but we actually hit, I think we hit 47 or 48 degrees in Western Sydney last summer. Um, so a lot of our current building stocks um, make people quite vulnerable to heat. They need a lot of energy to heat and cool and to expel heat during heat waves. They don't have shading structures, uh, sufficient shading structures. So if the grid goes down, uh, suburbs can overheat, and, and we actually have had a lot, a lot more mortality through heat stress than we have through things like bushfires um, in, in Australia, and, and that trend's only going to continue to get worse. And and the other thing is just the the, the cost of running these homes. So you know, two to three thousand dollars a year, four thousand dollars a year, um, and and at the moment people are income challenged in COVID. Uh, and if we build better energy efficient housing and use solar, you can actually eliminate most of those costs. And it, it just puts our our communities in a much better place to be healthier and to have healthier bank accounts at the same time. How did you learn about the environmental side of stuff? So just completely self-taught, just uh, an interest in it and off you went? Yeah, I, I just saw this opportunity to set up programs and uh, you know, when I was going through uni, I was working bars and and I thought it'd be nicer to work outdoors. And I guess that was a start, sort of a bit of a start of my entrepreneurial streak. Uh, I saw an opportunity to, to work with councils and water authorities and, and the criminal justice system to set up these programs. Uh, my mum suggested uh, the opportunity because she worked in the courts. Uh, right. She worked on in diversionary programs in the courts and uh, she, she made that suggestion and, and off I went. So set up these programs. We had hundreds and hundreds of, of young offenders come through the, uh, the, the the program over the years. And at the same time, I, I learned um, a lot about uh, biodiversity and biology and waterways and, and uh, revegetation. So 
it was really good for um, uh, for all parties, I thought. So you moved on from the young offenders or the offenders program, the rehabilitation there, didn't you, into more of a corporate um, a deployment of um, that environmental uh, rehabilitation, didn't you? Yeah, so when I started doing environmental stuff, it was really sort of a cottage industry. There were small nurseries around Melbourne growing, you know, 50,000 plants a year. Uh, and then our water authority started building big wetlands to treat stormwater coming from housing estates. Uh, they had uh, sort of legislative targets to remove uh, nitrogen and phosphorus and other stormwater pollution from our waterways. And uh, Melbourne Water uh, pioneered and championed building uh, stormwater wetlands to treat that stormwater to protect our, our downstream waterways in Port Phillip Bay. Mm-hmm. So there were big programs that started up to build these big constructed wetlands and uh, I saw that uh, those programs uh, coming. So organised a, a lease at, at Melbourne Water's Eastern Treatment Plant, one of the big sewage treatment plants here in Melbourne. And uh, with a friend, we built a wetland nursery and we started growing aquatic plants and planting them on these uh, these wetlands on these housing estates. And, and then the business just sort of took off. In the first year, we grew 50,000 plants. In the second year, half a million plants. And ever ever since then, every year, we grow a couple of million plants and we do you know, uh, many, many projects around Melbourne uh, with the property industry. You actually recruited a number of leading architects and designers to design houses for um for the cape didn't you um and as part of that i'm brief was that they needed to be environmentally friendly etc but they also had to be uh, designs that were publicly available to uh, online weren't they for for anyone to download yeah so if you're going to play an afl grand final you have to do a pre-season and i, I just realized that our pre-season to, to do a high-performance housing project was to train our local builders and to build that capacity here. Um, you know, we're, we're here at Cape Patterson near Wanthaggy. It's the site of Victoria's first coal mine. It's, uh, you know, it's not a place that was uh, well-known for uh, benchmark sustainable housing. Um, and I just thought if, if we're going to succeed here, we need to bring the building trades along and skill them up and, and, and the local designers. So... We set up a, a training process which went for many months where, where we pulled in local des- designers and architects, uh, the local builders and some of Australia's leading energy efficiency experts and we paid for the design and costing of 10 sample house designs. And it was interesting because the architects would bring forward their, their, their concepts and then they would be critiqued by the energy efficiency experts who would tell them, you know, just put a bit more thermal mass here, reduce mm-hmm. the size of those windows, move those windows over here, do these tweaks to your shading, and you will get your housing up above seven and a half star mm-hmm. with minimal cost. Uh, so that the energy efficiency experts were optimising the designs and the builders were giving feedback on buildability here in the coastal environment and what were the best materials to use. So we had this sort of teamwork approach uh, with competing designers and builders but they all teamed together to just go through this training process and the end result was that every time we we saw revisions of the designs we saw the price drop Uh, so we were able to eliminate a lot of the premium that it usually takes to build often takes to build sustainably 
and then we had these 10 open source designs and uh, we put them up on the website. Uh, they've been downloaded over 50,000 times now. And, um, and, but the, the important thing is we set up this capacity so that now when people walk into this estate, if they want a sustainable house, they talk to any of the builders and uh, they're guided through the process and they can deliver these beautiful sustainable homes at, at least cost. So that, that was critical to the success of the project. Never, ever underestimate human ingenuity, our ability to solve problems and dream up new inventions. It's one of the things that sets us apart as a species is our ability to continually increase our productivity. And of course, this ensures the long-term growth of the property market. As we become more productive, we become more profitable. As we become more profitable, that profitability will always feed back into the land prices. Always remember the five underlying drivers of property prices when you listen to Property Australia's favourite obsession. Always think, how does infrastructure, how will that affect land prices? How will technology increase land prices? What is the impact of changing populations? And credit, the, the role of the banks, and of course, government-granted licences, as we spoke with Warwick. Understanding how these drivers must impact property prices will give you an unfair advantage as a property investor. Learning how to spot these drivers before they manifest into property prices will make you an absolute fortune. And that's what PAFO is all about. It's about teaching you and showing you how these drivers interact, how they will manifest into land prices. That's our goal to help you make better, more informed, more educated investment decisions. Of course, we'd love to help you on your property journey. So feel free to contact us with your questions, queries, or if you'd like some help. Thanks for joining me and don't forget to like, subscribe or leave us a review for Property Australia's favourite obsession. I've been your host, Jeremy Cannon, and until next time, let's keep obsessing about property. Jeremy Cowan and Cowan O'Flack Proprietary Limited are authorised representatives of PGW Financial Services, Proprietary Limited, AFSL 384713.